and went, as, uh, as Joe says, I have been doing this for a long time with you, and I have always enjoyed it. I still still remember that first uh, Wednesday night in went back in probably 40 days, or actually closer to 46, I think, uh, preceding Easter are a time of deep significance to us. Many of us take it as a time of fasting, a time in which we're going to make some sort of a sacrifice, usually along the margins of our lives, in an effort to buff up and polish our self-discipline, and I fear all too often in an effort to gain favor with God by so doing. Um, others of us take on something, maybe reading a devotion each day or a passage of scripture or whatever. And let me hasten to say to you that any and all of these things are good. They are good. They are written blessings if they bring our minds and our hearts and our bodies nearer to God. But I'm here to encourage you tonight to use Lent as a time of slowing down, halting your rushing about, and to take this opportunity to think seriously, to reflect upon, to pray about, the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. 
The season of Lent gives us the opportunity to do this. It can be a time of deep penitence and mourning for our sin, a time of acknowledging our need of God and of a deeper relationship with Him, and a time that can lead to a deeper life and a and in a, a deeper relationship with Christ. At the center of our observation of Lent should be the contemplation of the passion and death of our Lord and of his resurrection from the dead. We do not value Lent for the sake of accumulating merit. We do not value Lent for the sake of accumulating merit. We value it for Jesus' sake. Lent is a time for ashes and for abstinence, but it's also a time to renew our efforts to understand the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lent and whatever discipline we may practice during these 40 or so days ought to lead to this end. And to achieve it, we need to first and foremost focus on the cross. A great preacher, now long since deceased, uh, remembered an early experience he had as a preacher. This is how he told it. Many years ago, he said, as a young man, I was preaching on the love of God. There was in the congregation an old Polish Jew who had been converted to Christian faith. He came up to me after my sermon and said, you have no right to speak of the love of God until you have seen as I have the blood of your dearest family and friends running in the gutters on a gray winter's morning. Words that may be particularly apt tonight given what's going on halfway around the world in Ukraine, right? Yes. You have no right to speak of the love of God until you have seen the blood of family and friends running in the gutters on a gray winter's morning. I asked him later, the preacher said, how having seen such a massacre, how, how having lived through it, he had come to believe in the love of God at all. And the answer he gave was that the Christian gospel first began to lay hold on him because it calls him to see God and to see the love of God just where he was. Just where he could not but always be in his thoughts and memories. In those blood-stained streets on that cold gray morning. The cross made him see the love of God not somewhere else but in the blood and the agony in the murder of the cross.
it moved him to the foot of the cross and to Calvary. He did, at least he said, recognize that the Christian gospel, the message of the cross, was a message that wrestled with, that grappled with, that, that sought to handle the facts of life and of reality and of war and of death and of blood running in the streets. The Christian faith, he said, caused him to look at that man on the cross and to know that it had brought him as an individual to the point of crisis and the point of decision in his life. He said to the young preacher, I knew that I must make up my mind once and for all and either take my stand beside him at the foot of the cross sharing his undefeated faith in God or else fail finally in the bottomless pit of bitterness and hatred and unutterable despair. That is a Lenten message. Each of us must settle for ourselves somehow the issue of the existence of God. We have to do that to our own satisfaction and for our own soul's good. But more importantly for most of us, for, for maybe all of us here tonight, the issue becomes not so much whether there is a God, whether He exists, but rather what kind of God He is. What's He like? What's His nature? For you and for me, the greatest question, and it's the question that I have asked myself virtually every day of my life, does God love me and those whom I love? Number two, does God care? Does God care? And these issues, these questions can't be settled remote from the existential realities of, of joy and beauty, betrayal and tyranny, exploitation, hatred, war, crass brutality. When we seek the clue to our existence, to human existence, we will listen to any message. We will listen to it, but to win us, it must be a message which has wrestled with the facts of life, with the pain of life, with sickness, with death, with the loss of those whom we love, with war unaccountably happening in Ukraine, with violence in the streets, with all the other hard facts of life with which we are called to, to, to wrestle. Whatever else pilgrims on the way they say about the cross, it is brought into proper focus when it affirms that the cross is grappling with the facts of our real world, our lives, 
our existence. That Christ is there bleeding and dying for a cause, for a purpose. That it's not in vain, that it's not lost, and that existentially, cosmically, eternally, that one event makes more difference than you and I could ever comprehend. Now when we say that the cross grapples and deals honestly and forthrightly with the facts, we've got to be honest about recognizing some things. First, you and I have to be honest in admitting that Jesus did not do many things that humanity wanted him to do or that you and I might wish he had done. Am I right? He didn't solve the problem of supplying us with the elemental necessities of a decent earthly existence. He didn't set up a great socialist revolution in the world. He didn't say, I'm giving you the gift of being cared for from praying to the grave. Not unless you read a gospel different from the one that I read. He didn't, he didn't end sickness. He didn't end death. People still starved in the streets of Jerusalem as he walked past them. And they have ever since. They do in the streets of Jacksonville. To be sure, his touching, his healing, all of which he did as signs of the kingdom, not as proof of his power and divinity. He said that one once and for all to save Not to show his power and his divinity. He did it for the sake of the kingdom. But, but even as men and women and children continued to die, even while he walked the earth, even as we've seen so much sickness and death as a society, as a world over the last two years, we, we, we knew that he still cared and he was still dealing with that. Not in the, not in the sense of, of abolishing disease or abolishing hunger or housing everyone or clothing everyone or even making sure we all had luck and a decent income but in the sense of revealing to us the very presence of God in himself and then giving his life on the cross in order that you and I might ascend with him and live there for eternity later. His claim to being a king was voiced, but there was no summit meeting with Caesar. His disciples still lived under unjust rules, under imperfect and incompetent rules, and just as not, not entirely incidentally in the church, with often incompetent leadership. He didn't solve the political problems, how to give power to rule and guard against the abuse of power, how to provide security and order without sacrificing freedom, how to give freedom without permitting injustice or producing chaos. He didn't answer those questions. And in any direction you and I may look, we have to conclude that even after his death and resurrection, Jesus has left us struggling with the realities of life. If we look to the Christian faith and to the cross for specific remedies 
for repressive legislation, social disorder, unequal distribution of privilege, abolition of want and disease and other injustices, we are bound to come face to face with a sense of frustration. Frustration that I've always believed must have, must have entered the mind, the heart of that man who asked of our Lord, Master, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. To which the Lord replied, Man, who made me a divider over you? Beware of covetousness. I suspect that man went away mumbling, hmm, no help here, just another brush off. Nothing omnipotent about this king, nothing but high sounding words, hot air. The fact with which the cross deals fact of which the cross deals is not so much our sins, our sins, the overactive, specific, overactive, specific contraventions of, of law and human decency and the will of God which daily mark our experience. Both what we do and what we left undone. What's done to us and what's left undone for us, right? But rather, the fact with which the cross deals is the fact of our sinfulness, of our separation, our alienation from God and from our neighbor, our lostness, our fallen nature. We look back to the Garden of Eden to gain some, some context for that statement, right? God, after all, has endowed, endowed us with the massive mystery of freedom. A freedom by which we destroy beauty, we destroy joy, we abuse the privilege of love, all of which can be marks of His true sonship in favor rather of self-love and self-appreciation and self-sovereignty which are our rule and have been since day three. <laughs> Remember how St. Paul puts it? There is a law in my members, Paul said, that wars against the law of my mind. Law in my members that wars against the law of my mind. That which I would do, I ought to do, I don't do. That which I would not do, should not do, that I do, O oh, wretched man that I am. St. Paul, great French scientist and mathematician, philosopher, theologian, Blaise Pascal, tells us this. Philosophers are inclined, philosophers are inclined, and these days, I think too many teachers of systematic theology in our seminaries are inclined to dwell on the dignity of man, dignity of humanity, and tempt humanity to pride, to greatness, to belief in self, to self-esteem, to, to, to exalting me, mine. Ours. Or 
they dwell too much on the misery of humanity, the misery of man, Pascal said, and tempt him, tempt us, tempt you, tempt me to despair. It's either we're made to feel too proud, too fulfilled, too important, or we're made to feel not important at all. Not beloved at all, not cared about at all. It's, it's this same frustration, I think, that led St. Paul not to cry out, not to cry out what system of thought, what, what political plan, what, what, what party, what, what social scheme can deliver me. That's not what Paul's cry was. His cry was, who can deliver me from this body of death? That's why one of the greatest minds in history, Blaise Pascal, followed the penitent thirsting of St. Paul, the Lenten thirsting of St. Paul, to the same place, the identical place to which Paul had been led by his own sinfulness, his own alienation and separation from God. And that is to the foot of the cross. Now, the fact with which the cross deals is the root fact of human experience. Namely, that we are powerless to rid ourselves of the cancerous fatal malady of sin, of isolation from and rebellion against the very ground of our being, as 20th century theologians like to say, by our own human schemes, by our human intelligence and our own human ingenuity. And some of us were 40 days each year by not drinking coffee or alcohol or eating chocolate or ice cream or taking on some minor devotional device that won't change our life much at all. Our intelligence, our human ingenuity is not enough. We scream with St. Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the further fact that our prideful human attempts during this particular season to polish up our character so that we can stand on even ground with God and exact from Him the reward of His recognition, acclaim, and approval as just deserts of our moral striving leaves a lot to be desired. It merely leads us further further into the hell of a far-off country of our self-removal self and denial of God. It's only when you and I come to understand the breakthrough of the cross and of the suffering God upon it. Like that old Jew said to his young Christian preacher, it's only when we come to understand the breakthrough of the cross and of the suffering God upon it, His body pierced by our rebellion, His heart broken by our treachery, yet His love unimpaired by 
our Father, that we are able to know the forgiveness of God that passes understanding. The forgiveness of God that passes understanding and the incomprehensible healing of His pure, unmerited grace. It's a great movie from the late 1950s. None of you were old enough to remember what that did. <laughs> it was called The Best of Everything. And it starred Joan Crawford and Hope Lang. It's a sordid tale. It's, it, it, was, it was Peyton Place before Peyton Place. <laughs> oh, that's my child. I don't remember Peyton Place. <laughs> it's about a small town girl who goes to the big city. And it, it, it's like Mad Men. And you probably do remember Mad Men. It's, it's, a, it's the world of, of, of secretaries. Oh, that's a word we all don't know. I, 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 I that's not preaching all movies. It's a world of office assistants and predatory bosses, <laughs> of exploitation and disillusionment, but with rare glimpse, a rare glimpse of profound goodness. The basic storyline is like this. One of the young women comes to the big city to work as a secretary, and she dreams of love and her own family and loses her heart to a a wealthy, irresistibly attractive playboy. He, he, he talks to her of love, led her to believe that he would marry her and that marrying would set everything right in her world. She's pregnant. He picks her up, she thinks, to go to a chapel to be married to him. But once in the car, the reality comes clear. He's not taking her to church. He's taking her to an abortionist. Disillusioned by his real intentions, in despair, the girl throws herself from his fast-moving car onto the highway. Loses the baby almost loses her life. And then she's ministered to by a young doctor and moves slowly back to health of body and mind. And eventually the young doctor, having fallen in love with her, asks her to marry him. And as the two of them go away, this time really to be married, the girl's roommate, looking down from the second, third floor window of the little apartment that they shared, says in wonderment, in absolute disbelief, think of meeting someone who knows all about you, just as you are, and still loves you enough to marry. This in the asphalt jungle of human passions and human desperation is a great revelation. For this is the gospel, which is the cross 
in its proper focus. The words of the great theologian, this business of forgiveness is by no means a simple thing. The work of Lent doesn't come about easily. It's not hard because we are opposed to it in principle. It's hard because, now get this and, 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 and apply your Lenten heart to this. It's because we are so just. We're so just and in our mania to be just, we proceed to divide the burden of forgiveness among partners. Get We parcel our forgiveness justly. We say, very well, if the other fellow is sorry and begs my pardon, I'll forgive him. Then I'll give him. This makes forgiveness dependent on the law of reciprocity. Makes forgiveness dependent on the law of reciprocity, and it never works. It never works. The secret of forgiveness is never really just to follow suit when the other person is led with his regret, with her regret. Forgiveness is always taking the initiative. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Forgiveness is initiative, is being the first to say, I'm sorry, to say you're forgiven, to say I love you enough in spite of everything that's gone before, even without remembering what did go before. Forgiveness is imitation of Jesus and Him crucified. Thus, the gospel means, and I think this gets to the essence of Lent, that God has broken through the law of sin and retribution and made a new and radical beginning with you and me. A new and radical beginning which we can enjoy tonight and which we can experience tonight if we will take the initiative. It means that God, through His holy righteousness, no longer acts towards me as a judge, no longer behaves like an arbiter of the law, giving me what's, what I've got coming to me. God doesn't do that anymore. He acts as a loving Father who is mercifully just with His child. You and I live by this miracle. We live by this miracle. This initiative of God, this abolition of the law of reciprocity. It's the initiative of God which you and I strain to bear witness to during this Lenten season. It's the unconditional gift of His grace. No rules. Nothing off limits. No secrets. Knowing someone who loves you so much and knows you so well that he'd still be willing to not just marry you, but die for you. And that is the sort of grace, the sort of love upon which you and I must focus 
we must focus upon its perfect embodiment, Christ Jesus on the cross. Therefore, my musings come to an end, and I invite you simply during the following days to focus on the cross. For it's there and there alone that you and I will come to know the true breadth and depth of the mercy and love and forgiveness of God. Already given us, freely, there for the taking. It's there alone that we have received the fullness of the best this Lenten season has to offer us. Let us Heavenly Father, we pray your mercy for all who may falter beneath life's cross, finding it heavier than their strength. For all who lose the path, finding the way too dark for human sight. For all who struggle against odds even though their hope dwindles to despair. For all who pray alone and travel alone, through some Gethsemane, finding no answer but the eternal light of silent stars. For all who lift their cross without bitterness, finding its pain too deep for complaint. For all who die and find in death what life had denied them. For all these and others who have no prayers to offer out of their hopelessness, we beseech you, grant us your mercy. Help us to focus on the cross. And there, help us at last to find a truly holy land. Amen. When is that open for publication? That's, that was my, that's my question. I'd like to read that.
one of the most important points that we've made tonight is that it's not that our, our, our issue isn't so much our sins or the sickness or the death or the tragedy of the world. Our issue is the distance we have chosen to live from God. It's our sinful mess. We can die for our sins. But our sins are the result of something deeper. Our sinful mess, which has to do with the fall and who we are in relation to God all the time. We thank you for that comment. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you so much. As I, as I said to you in starting, uh, I'm, I'm not telling you how to, how to how to have a holy Lent, but I hope I will some help in telling you where to find one. Okay? okay. God bless you all. Joe asked me to, to say a word of benediction before we end, and so I will please stand and join me. Lord, we ask in this land that you would have mercy on us all, that you would forgive us our sins and trespasses, even as we seek to follow you and take the initiative in forgiving others. And, and as we seek to do those things, believe those things, and trust you to such an extent that we can move back closer to you. Bless these dear friends, Lord. Keep them, help them to experience you more closely and more deeply uh, during this Lenten season in order that we may awaken on Easter morning the true joy of seeing your son walk resurrected from that tomb may truly be theirs. Amen. Thank you, sir. Uh, next week, we'll have the Reverend Alan Hill, who is the new chaplain at FSU, uh, Ruby Hall, there. And uh, he will be with his uh, wife, Rachel, who is also ordained. I dare you to come back uh, next week. And I double dare you to bring a friend. Uh, but Alan has a lot of international experience. He was uh, dean of the cathedral in Lima and, and very close uh, to Lima, Peru, and then also closely associated with the seminary there, and a lot of work around the world. And so he's going to be uh, drawing on his experiences internationally uh, to talk about making a meaningful win. So, see ya. Well, I'll see you Sunday. Yes. And then I will see you uh, Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good night. God bless you. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.